Roger that, Houston. All systems five by five. But what if there is no tomorrow? There wasn't one today. Welcome to episode 90 of the Nerdfest podcast. This week's nerds are Dan Watkins, Andy Chandler, Peter Johnson, John Farthing, and I'm Hazel Burton. Today's show is all about lovely, lovely newness. So all the things that we've been enjoying recently, we're going to tell you all about them. So if you haven't yet, you can enjoy them too. So let's get started. Ninety episodes. Yes, we're entering the the nervous nineties, as they say in cricket. Mm-hmm. Uh, we should probably start planning for the one hundredth episode, right? Well, when we get to hundred episodes, if we were an American network TV show, we'd get cancelled. <laughs> oh yeah, because <laughs> a hundred was the magic number that they could sell it into syndication. Yes. That they'd have enough episodes to play five nights a week for you to get to the end and forget the first one, and they can just then go on ad infinitum. So why are they still making the Simpsons? Nobody knows. No one was counting. <laughs> That's where it went wrong. <laughs> I'm nearing the end of my Simpsons Odyssey. I've got a handful of season 30 and then season 31 to do, and I will have watched all of the ones that are currently on Disney+. Plus. What a fantastic waste of time, Dan. Yeah. Isn't it? But my sense of being a completist is uh, yeah. driving me to this. I more or less stopped watching it when Homer got raped by a panda. What? Oh, it's heavily implied. Actually, I said what? I didn't actually mean for you to elaborate. I, that, I was, that was kind of just an exclamation, yeah. and I thought you were just going to stop talking. No, no, no. He, he, I think he's Mr. Burns. To change the monkey. subject. John, I, I like the Funker Pop you just got for Louise. No wonder if Homer be ripped by a band. <laughs> <laughs> I hate you so much. <laughs> They've really would low on ideas from co pops. <laughs> what what did you buy for Louise, John? It's Louise's birthday today. It's a, a limited edition Funko Pop and it's Ripley, but in the, the dog. You got your dog is a Funko Pop. Alien power loader. <laughs> and seeing as you've now got Ripley from Aliens, do you now have all the right Funko Pops to animate the opening titles to the Nerdfest podcast? We pretty much have. I bought you a Funko Pop for your birthday in March, John. Still hasn't arrived. <laughs> I know. I have a sneaking suspicion it doesn't exist anymore, <laughs> or it never existed. I was going to ask what it was, but does John know? He does. <laughs> I told him last month because uh, I have a feeling it might never arrive. <laughs> what is it? It is a Jaws one, and I have to confess, but I can't remember whether it was Quint or Hooper. Now, I think it was Hooper. I have the big Jaws shark, and I have a Brody. So it would have been nice to go somewhere towards completing the, the Jaws set. For the opening titles, you could use the original Bruce to stand in for the shark. What, Steven Spielberg's lawyer? <laughs> I, had, I don't have a fan Nemo Funko Pop. But you can use Jaws. I could do, but it would be inaccurate. It would have been keeping with the spirit of the endeavour. Well, get off your arse and buy the right Funko Pops, then. <laughs> Buying a Funko Pop based on a child's film seems... Oh, hang on. Yeah. <laughs> it makes you wonder what it's all for, really, doesn't it? <laughs> so, Loki, that was shit, wasn't it? No, I'm just kidding, actually. It was all right. So it was uneven, but I really enjoyed the fifth episode and there were bits of most of the other episodes that I liked. Yeah, I think Andy and I 
every week, whatever I thought of the episode, he thought the exact opposite and vice versa. <laughs> well, the truth is, I actually just waited to see what your opinion was before forming my own. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I really liked the whole thing. It was basically Russell T. Davis either Doctor Who on a big budget, and I really enjoyed that. Which actually I've been really enjoying. We've just watched the first season of Christopher Eggleston. Mm-hmm. And how much more fun is it than what Doctor Who became for the last couple of years? Just that sense of fun and adventure. Um, I think that's what Loki had. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Whether it concluded itself as a story on a strong enough level. Mm. At the end, mm. you're kind of like, well, have I watched a series or have I watched a trailer for the next slate of Marvel films? I would agree that's probably its worst crime is not really finishing itself properly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and as a, as a finale of an ongoing series, it was really good. I really liked that. Mm-hmm. If that had been it and there was going to be no more Loki... I can see the disappointment in that one, but I quite like the final episode for that. Ooh, I want to see what happens next. Did you see the interview with the director where she basically said, I was as surprised as you were when it, they said season two and that it was written and directed as a one and done. Oh, really? According to an interview, yeah. So they were assuming that the events would lead straight into Doctor Strange, the multiverse yeah. of madness. Yeah, It's not over till we get Mobius on a jet ski. Yeah, I thought it had moments of brilliance and moments where I was like, mm, not really sure. But the it was really quite inspired writing at times, quite inspired direction. And um, I think I liked it more and more as the series went on uh, and really enjoyed the final episode. I loved meeting um, Jonathan Major's character. I loved uh, his introduction. And whilst it's like sometimes when you have a TV show and then you try and wrap it up by introducing a brand new character at the end who's supposed to be this villain. And it's like, actually, I would prefer to have met them earlier to have more of an arc. Um, I thought they actually wrapped it up very, very well. It explained it in a way that I could understand yes, as someone it. who is not well-versed in mm-hmm. how multiverses work. With 3D pictures, I, I, I got it. <laughs> Although it was tell-not-show. It was an awful lot of tell, wasn't it? Doing a tell-not-show actually made a really nice change Mm-hmm. instead of just things flying in the sky and hitting, hitting each other yeah. with lasers to, to go with, let's just have a really long speech, was actually quite a nice change. I thought Richard E. Grant was playing with Neil played Loki, if that makes sense. Arguably, Owen Wilson was just playing Owen Wilson, as he always does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was always this sort of same way of speaking. Mm. What? But- People yeah. have voices, what? Peter. I'm sorry, let's not gloss over that. <laughs> what was that? <laughs> he always speaks in a little weird sort of slightly Kermady voice. Well, funny enough, we're going to come on to bad accents later with my recommendation. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean, bad? Wow. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit higher on Loki as a series than I think Amy was. It's not high up on my list. It's a little bit above Falcon and the Winter Soldier, but definitely not as good as one division for me yeah i'd agree with that ranking mm-hmm. how many um loki's out of 10 would we give the show i would go with a six out of 10 i will mm. give it two points for each episode i liked i'll give it a seven and three quarters six as well for me eight for me i'll give it seven out of ten but without alligator loki you're hovering around a six <laughs> <laughs> he gets one whole point on his own <laughs> he does he really does Should we do some recommendations? Nah. (laughs) Who'd like to go first? I can go first. Say it with conviction, Dan. 
I can go first. <laughs> Sounds like Ian McKellen was in, in, in the room. That was amazing. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. He's not. Uh, I mean, if, if Ian McKellen were on the room, I would have introduced him by this point. I think he's passed out in the corner. Too hot. Henceforth with your recommendation, Dan. Oh, are we, are we keeping that over-enthusiastic yes. volunteering? Okay. The sun has got to my brain. We now have to do this. It's Shakespearean. Have I got to do it all, Shakespearean? I think you just answered your own question. Yes, for lo, my recommendations have been split in twain this episode. <laughs> no. Because <laughs> I missed the past couple of recommendation episodes, I've actually got two this week. I've got a double recommendation. Greedy. I know. My first one is another book for the Nerdfest bookshelf from our friends at Bloomsbury, and it's The Kingdoms by Natasha Pulley. Uh, it's a story that begins with a character called Joe who arrives in 1898 London with no memory of who he is. He's also speaking English, which is not permitted in a city that's been part of the French Empire for nearly a century. When he receives a postcard of a Scottish lighthouse from 90 years in the past, on which is the message, come home if you remember, Joe begins a journey that will change the past and the future at the same time. The Kingdoms is an alternate history time travel epic that takes place across multiple timelines, a little bit like Loki, where actions have got huge effects. You piece together the implications of this along with Joe as he tries to figure out his place and has to decide how he's going to save his present, but help to defeat France in the past to change the future. And at the heart of it all is a love story that slowly grows over the course of the book, and by the end, it completely gripped me. I didn't mind what was going to happen with all of the time slips, but I was desperate for the story to end happily. So if you're looking for something compelling and original to read this summer, I recommend The Kingdoms. Mm, sounds yeah, great. Yeah, sounds good. Yeah. Mm. Ticked all of my boxes. Alt history, yes. Time travel, yep. <laughs> Bit of romance, yep. Chapters that take place at Edinburgh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, all boxes ticked. Anti-French sentiment? Well, <laughs> yes and no. Depends which timeline you're in. Mm. Yeah. So is, is does he visit an alternate reality where the Brexit referendum went the other way? Sadly, doesn't go that far into the future, but the way that the time travel is constructed means that he could. I'm in. How does time travel and alternate realities and stuff work in a novel? I know that there's lots of novels like this, but I'm struggling to think of one that I've read. Back to the Future 2. It's very clear, even in alternative reality, because the design is different and all that kind of stuff. How's that dealt with narratively? Each chapter will start with the location and the year at the start, so you know where and when you are. Mm -hmm. And depending on who won the Battle of Trafalgar in 1805, the language changes. So if you're in the English version of the timeline, it's London. If you're in the French version, it's spelled the French way and pronounced the French way, which I'm not going to try because I will get it wrong. L-O-N-D-R-E-S. Londres. 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 So if you're in French London, you're in Londres, and the chapter title will say that, so you kind of always know where and when you are. Mm -hmm. But because it's from Joe's perspective, you kind of don't always need to figure it out straight away. I'm not sure how well it would work on screen because there are certain revelations that work brilliantly on the page, but you would know in advance if you were watching it mm -hmm. and it would kind of take away the dramatic reveal of certain plot points. You're able to keep identities and things like that a little bit more secret. 
in a book. So I think if it were to be adapted, they'd have to find a way around those kind of things. What sort of age range would you see it aimed at in terms of its writing style? I would go adult. Uh, There is some violence, there is some gore, there are murders, there is swearing and naughty words as well. In English or French? (sighs) That would be telling. Swearing and naughty words. (laughs) What naughty words are there that aren't swearing? Words to do with things that adults do to each other. Titties. (laughs) (laughs) I I I love making Dan uncomfortable. (laughs) You can't even see me and I'm cringing. Um, um, There's there's depictions of slavery and things like that as well. What's the naughtiest line in the book, Dan? John. Let's have Dan's top ten list of naughty words. (laughs) I'll steal it from Bender on Futurama. Number 10, chump. Number 9, chumpette. Does it evoke any Time Traveller's Wife vibes? Have you read that? I have not read or seen Uh, it. Tell me about The Time Traveller's Wife. Don't see it. The film's utter, utter arse. But um, the book is amazing and it actually deals with the trauma of time travelling. So the the time traveller is called Henry, um, but he he time travels unwillingly. So sometimes he'll be abruptly removed from his reality and go somewhere else in time without his clothes. Um, so, Are you sure it's not like when John goes to walk the dog and then disappears <laughs> for about eight hours to the pub? Do you wind up naked in fields a lot? Surprisingly <laughs> often. <laughs> Next to Ian. Um, yeah, uh, I'd, I'd, I'd love that book. I would highly recommend it. But only as a book. Yes, the Rachel McAdams, Eric Banner film, not worth your time. This is a book that's really loved, isn't it? Mm. I, and the only reason I know this is because there are so many people who are so angry about that film. Who really <laughs> yeah. loved and adored the book and yeah. genuinely annoyed at what they did to it. <laughs> so what's your second recommendation, Dan? My second recommendation is a documentary series on Apple TV Plus called 1971, The Year Music Changed Everything. It's from series director Asif Kapadia, who made Senna and Amy, among other films. Yep. And it uses his trademark style of voiceover rather than talking heads and entirely archival footage. Each episode looks at a different aspect of 1971 and its music, often centering around a major theme, whether that's the emergence of singer-songwriters or the end of attitudes that had prevailed in the 60s or the evolution of black culture in America or in Britain. Uh, Your interest across the series will probably depend on how interested you are in each episode's theme and the musicians that feature. So episodes three and eight, for example, I loved. They focus a lot on Bowie and his time in America, forming a new stage persona that becomes the climax of the whole series, with a lovely quote from him, Fuck me, we've just killed the 60s. We are the future. (laughs) Um, Episodes two and six, meanwhile, spend quite a lot of time with the Rolling Stones, and those episodes didn't hold my interest quite as much. The biggest takeaway for me was just how good the music of 1971 is. Just for a short list of people whose music features in this series, Marvin Gaye, John Lennon, Mark Bolan, Aretha Franklin, Carole King, Joni Mitchell, Elton John, Gil Scott Heron, Tina Turner, The Who, and many, many more. I have downloaded a lot of music based on this show. (laughs) There's fascinating looks into the wider context of what was happening in Britain and America and beyond during these 12 months as well. There was a lot happening in 1971, a lot of incredible music. And while not every episode's going to be for everyone, I can definitely recommend giving it a watch. Best thing on Apple TV that's not Ted Lasso. Hmm. (laughs) That sounds good. So marks out of 10? I'd probably give 1971 a 7 out of 10, just because there were a couple of episodes that 
lost me a little bit, either because I wasn't familiar enough with the musicians featured or I'm just not a massive fan. The Kingdoms, I would give easily a nine out of ten. So you've recommended two things, Dan, but neither of them are in the heights. You shock me. It's been out for a month now. I did manage to... No, no, you stand there in your wrongness and you be wrong. (laughs) I am shocked. Says she who also did not, despite having appeared on the last two recommendations episode, unlike me. That's a fair cop. Yeah, but I didn't like it. (laughs) You stand there in your wrongness and be wrong. I'm just kidding. It's, It's all right. Would you like my review? What, what's your review, John? In the heights, in the shites, more like. <laughs> How many years have you been sitting on that since the film was announced? I don't know. To be fair, I only watched the last half hour. So. <laughs> there was a bit where they danced on some buildings that was quite cool, and then he gave up all his dreams to open a slightly nicer shop. What the fuck's that as a model? <laughs> gave up your dreams and opened a shop? It's like Thatcher made a film. i'd love them to use that quote for the uh, poster (laughs) it's like thatcher made a film (laughs) all right who's next i'd like to talk about a series called why women kill which is an american is it mansplaining (laughs) white male peter tell us all about why women do things we can't wait for this (laughs) sorry (sighs) please continue and Bloody explain women. all about women. Interrupting all the time. <laughs> anyway. It's off to a good start, Peter. <laughs> yeah. are, they, are they bloody women because they've just killed somebody? <laughs> oh, God. Right. <laughs> Shut up, everyone. Especially Hazel. <laughs> <laughs> I'm only in a bad mood because it's my time of the month. <laughs> <laughs> Peter, do you want to recommend In the Heights instead? It's safer. That is a joke that I will come back to for my uh, Black Widow review. Okay. Mm. So... Yes, I'd like to talk about Why Women Kill, which is an American dark comedy series from Mark Cherry. Just know he's going to cut all of that out. Isn't he? <laughs> Just start from there. Maybe. <laughs> this is an American dark comedy series from Mark Cherry, best known as the creator of massive hit Desperate Housewives. Like Fargo, American Horror Story or Castle Rock, it's an anthology where each series tells a totally different self-contained story about the events leading up to one or two murders. Despite that, the whole thing's done with a certain camp glee and flair that makes watching its twisty-turny plot great fun. The first season was about three different women all living in the same Pasadena mansion in different decades. In 1963, a contended housewife discovers her husband's having an affair and what she thought was an idyllic marriage is just a sham. In 1984, a society lady, played by Lucy Liu, found out the husband, Jack Davenport, is secretly gay. And in 2019, a bisexual attorney finds her open marriage tested when she and her husband both become attracted to the same young woman. Each episode hops between the three stories, but it keeps you engaged with all three at all times. The second season instead intertwines its plots. A dowdy housewife in 1950s America yearns to join the classy ladies' gardening club where they gossip and drink gin together. Her husband, played by Nick Frost, is a veterinarian who secretly bumps off old ladies among his clientele if he discovers any unhappiness in their lives, which he sees as an act of kindness. Wait, what? He bumps them off? He kills them. Oh, okay. I heard something else. Is bumping someone <laughs> off not a common thing for killing people? It is. I, I missed the P. <laughs> <laughs> so the glamorous leader of the gardening club is married to a decrepit and mean old man who can no longer speak and is having an affair with a dumb, would-be actor 
He in turn is secretly seeing the daughter of the dowdy housewife. It only gets more complicated from there. As after being rebuffed and embarrassed in her efforts to join the club, the housewife decides to get revenge on the leader, and she is married to just the murderer to do it. The characters are likeable and fun to spend time with, even Lucy Liu, which is a surprise. And there's a certain over-the-top, farce-like way that everything's played, somewhere between melodrama and panto. It's not gory enough to get Karis hot and bothered, but it is always enjoyable. In the US, it airs on Paramount, and the first season's airing in the UK on Alibi, which is part of the Sky package. Uh, It's also available to buy on Amazon Prime, but at 25 quid, that's too high to pay for pretty much anything of this sort. I'm pleased to finish with of this sort, because I wanted a list of five things that are worth paying more than £25 for. (laughs) Game of Thrones. Not necessarily TV, just things. (laughs) (laughs) How much did your special Ripley Funko Pop cost? Um... Slightly less than £25. <laughs> a dialysis machine, uh, a car, an alligator. <laughs> so this sounds very, very good. I really, really like Desperate Housewives. I didn't see Devious Maids, but I do like Mark Cherry's writing. It's a bit over the top, but he manages to, to, to pull it off yeah. with the actors that he casts. So They are good casts, quite recognisable, a lot of them. Mm-hmm. And it's the characters that kind of draw you in mm-hmm. it, it's not comedy comedy it's more black comedy or dark comedy than mm-hmm. it's not ha-ha comedy mm-hmm. the first season sounds slightly more interesting than the second to me in that you've got these three stories in different timelines that presumably kind of reflect on each other but don't actually interact although it doesn't get in the way too much the fact that you've then fragmented your time between the three things I think makes the second series mm-hmm. slightly more enjoyable. But, I mean, they're both good. They're just different things. Is there a one that you preferred? At the moment, I would say the second one, because that's one I've just watched, and I found it great fun. I thought it was brilliant. The lead actress, Alison Tolman, was also the lead for the first season of the Fargo TV show, mm-hmm. and she's very good. I think it was like Mark Cherry, again, I've never seen Devious Bears, but it sounds like he's got a, a kind of a niche so is it very similar to Desperate Housewives in kind of tone? Only in that sort of magnified version of life. Mm-hmm. In some ways like a soap opera writ big. Mm. Yeah. It reminds me a little bit of uh, the Chicago musical. He had it coming. That kind of yeah. vibe. <laughs> he only has himself to blame. Could you apologise for laughing at Peter's attempt at an accent earlier? <laughs> 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 Why? He who is without sin shall cast the first stone or whatever they say. Greenhouses and throwing stones. Like, there's a metaphor or something. Yeah, but, you know, how good at you at accents, John? And have you seen me attempt to do one? <laughs> yes. Sadly, yes. <laughs> she had it coming. You see, that's much better. <laughs> I can't do my own accents. How many cherries on the top would you give it? Oh, oh. eight cherries on the top out of ten. Mmm, that are good. It's a lot of cherries. Go for it, John. Surprisingly for people today, I've got a low-budget horror movie to talk about. Cal surprise. Oh. And this is where I clap. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to talk about a film called Censor. Is that C-E-N-S-O-R or S-E-N-S-O-R? C-E-N. Um, and it's set in 1980s Britain. Now, I don't know how familiar people are with the video nasties of the 1980s and the story behind them all. Not at all. 
this is an interesting thing because the film really depends a lot on your knowledge of that particular era in British history and that particular genre. So I'm going to just give a very brief background of that before I talk about the film itself, because otherwise it doesn't make an awful lot of sense. So essentially in Britain, um, we have the BBFC, which at the time was the British Board of Film Censors. Oh, and we had Mary Whitehouse, as we learnt last episode. And they were responsible for classifying all the films that were showing in cinemas in Britain. This censorship system was all well and good until the arrival of video recorders in the late 70s and early 80s. For a long time, films released on video didn't have to be classified. And also, a lot of the major companies were wary of releasing their films on video. So you had a lot of video recorders, a lot of video recorder shops. That glut was filled by a lot of very, very cheap, shoddy horror movies from America, from Britain, and particularly from around Eastern Europe, often um, very poorly dubbed. And to kind of get space on a crowded shelf, they would overplay their gore and their violence, and they would get kind of ridiculously over the top and bloody and so on, to the extent that they ended up being a national outcry where these films were deemed obscene and the police would raid video shops and confiscate videos. Um, There was obscenity trials for films like The Evil Dead. Uh, So eventually the law was changed and videos had to be classified in the same way as cinema films did. Those things that were released were often very, very heavily cut by the censors so as not to offend the Mary Whitehouses or the tabloid press of the time. So we are in Soho in 1984 and we are following Enid, who is a video censor working during this era. And her job essentially is to sit in a small dark room, either on her own or with one other person, watching grim, depressing horror movies and deciding whether they are suitable for other people to watch. Sounds like your dream job. Yes, it it would be, wouldn't it? Um, Now, Enid has a thing in the past where when she was a child, she went out with her younger sister to play in the woods and her younger sister disappeared and was never seen again. And then one day, while Enid is at work, a video appears that bears a strong resemblance to what happened to her as a child and featuring an actress who looks perhaps like a grown-up version of her sister. Mm. So she investigates this. At the same time, a serial killer known as the Amnesia Killer is arrested. I remember him. (laughs) Why? Because he can't remember his crimes. Right. Uh, But he is arrested. (laughs) The bad alibi killer. I'd love you to be the lawyer for that case. Yeah. <laughs> you, can't, you can't sentence him to death because he can't remember doing it. Case done. <laughs> You're free to go as long as you don't forget anything ever again. <laughs> so the amnesia killer is arrested and he blames his murders on watching video nasties, in particular one video nasty that was passed by Enid. And as she slowly becomes obsessed with the pressure of the tabloids attacking her over this film, And over the contents of this new film she's watching that she begins to investigate the lines between her reality and the fiction of the films that she is watching and the creation of these films all kind of slowly start to bleed into one another and Fracture has a a, a mental condition deteriorates. Sounds like a babble of laughs, doesn't it? Yeah, it sounds great. No, it is, but it is genuinely really, really good. If, like me, you have a fondness for the films of that era, you'll appreciate a lot of the callbacks and references, and particularly like the, the, the fake films that they make and that we see clips of. 
that really, really are perfect evocations of that era and of the films. It's obviously you know, made with a lot of love and respect for those sort of films. Really, really well acted. Will we know the names behind this movie? No. Um, it's a feature film directorial debut by a lady called Prano or Prano. Um, I don't know how you pronounce her name. Bailey Bond, who is a first-time filmmaker. The lead actress is Neve Alger, who, again, I've not seen anything else, but there is some support from better-known names. Nicholas Burns is in there, probably best-known for Nathan Barley. And Michael Smiley has a small pivotal role, and Michael Smiley's he's good in everything. He's kind of like a sleazy film producer and plays that role to perfection. Tonally, it's very similar to St. Maud, which I know Andy watched and really enjoyed. That's a great film. So if it's like that, then I'm in. And that similar thing of a repressed individual whose repression kind of erupts in ways that lead to her losing control, and you're never sure whether what you're seeing is what is happening or what is in her head, and that's blurred very, very well in the last third. But it's not one of these films where you walk away going, what the hell happened here? You will know from that description of it that I've given whether you will want to watch it or not. Is it psychological rather than gore type of horror? It is mainly psychological. There is gore within the context of the film, but there is also gore in the context of the films that we are seeing within the films. It very cleverly opens up with like a montage of video nasties, which are a mix of real ones. Um, So Driller Killer is in there Mm. and things like that. And then you kind of fade from the real ones into the fictional ones. It's very, very low budget, but it evokes 1980s London very well, particularly in kind of Soho and King's Cross and that area. Before they became gentrified, it's got that real 1980s vibe about it. It's not for everybody. It's an acquired taste. Um, but <laughs> like most of your movies. <laughs> but if, if you want to see a film that will make you think that uh, it's shot beautifully and has some really great performances in it, then I can't recommend it enough. I don't tend to do horror so much, but that really does sound like something I would enjoy. Mm-hmm. I may come to regret it, but I'm, I'm going to give that a try. Where can we see it, John? It had a very limited cinema release last month, but it's now available on all your digital streaming services. And I think it probably is still doing the rounds at independent cinemas. Cool. Hmm. So how many uh, necessary cuts would you give it out of 10? I would have given the uncut version 10 out of 10, but due to edits made by an overzealous sensor, it gets a 9 out of 10. I like it. Uh, So I'd like to recommend Another Round, which is a Danish comedy drama film from Thomas Vinterberg. It won this year's Oscar for Best International Feature over my pick, Quo Vadis Aida, so it damn well better be good. And um, (laughs) fortunately it is. Also, it stars Mads Mikkelsen in a very, very excellent performance, so what's not to like? The premise is that four high school teachers consume alcohol throughout the day, ostensibly as an experiment to see how it affects their social and professional lives. Uh, The kind of premise that if it was made in Hollywood would probably be a stupid gross-out comedy starring someone like Vince Vaughn. Thankfully, it's a much deeper and more thoughtful film than that. On a philosophical level, it's not just a film about drinking. It's about middle-aged men who discover that they've stagnated. Uh, They're boring, without ambition, and without any real joy in their lives. And they justify their drinking as an investigative experiment into the effects of alcohol. But really, it's a transgressive rebellion against who they've become and an attempt to recapture their youth. John, how's your investigation going? Uh, It's part of a pilot programme, so it's perfectly... (laughs) Topical. (laughs) 
Uh, the film depicts many different stages of the drunken experience and doesn't bother to take a moral stance on it at all. It's not preachy. It begins with the friends experiencing lowered inhibitions and increased confidence, as you'd expect, and it progresses to joy and camaraderie and then silliness, then rowdiness, then embarrassment and humiliation and finally tragedy. Though it ventures deep into the dark side of alcohol, even offering some criticism of Denmark's drinking culture, the heart of the story is Mickelson's character Martin rediscovering a spark within himself and remembering the value of really being present and enjoying life. This is beautifully captured in a delightful, joyful sequence right at the end of the film, which is worth the price of admission alone. I never knew that Mads Mikkelsen could do that. Yes, <laughs> it's amazing. So it's, it's bright and entertaining and funny, but successfully blends that with darkness and realistic consequences in a way that feels natural. Overall, I had a huge amount of fun watching this film and even found it kind of uplifting, despite the dramatic heft of the lower moments. So it's still showing in cinemas at time of recording. If you can catch it there, then do. Uh, if you can't, then I'm sure it'll be on a big streaming platform soon enough. So check it out. While you were describing the film, I had a quick look to see if there had been an American remake announced yet. And there has. <laughs> oh. And it's going to star Leonardo oh. DiCaprio yeah. in the Mads Mikkelsen role. How do you feel about DiCaprio? Will he capture the same energy? DiCaprio may be my favourite actor, but the film doesn't need to be remade at all. Sure, it's in Danish and you have to read subtitles, but that's the only excuse they've got. There's that scene in um, Wolf of Wall Street where he's so incredibly high on drugs and tries to get into the car, mm -hmm. which might work quite well <laughs> yeah. in this context as well. Originally, it's quite a different film, and he sent the script to his daughter, Ida, she was like, I absolutely love it. We have to make this together. And she was going to star as Mads Mikkelsen's daughter. But a couple of days into filming, Ida tragically died in a car accident. She was only 19. And obviously this absolutely devastated everybody. And he was like, I don't know how to carry on. I don't know um, how to make this film without her. It was her spirit and everything kind of was alive in this. He has changed the film's plot slightly. It's more about life now. I think when you kind of know that context and know what everybody was going through when they were making this film, it sort of shines a new light mm -hmm. on the story. It really kind of got me by the heartstrings, this film, um, for, for kind of certain moments. The acting is extraordinary, particularly by Mads Mikkelsen. Been out in the cinemas for a little while, but if you do get the chance to watch it, I would highly recommend you do that. As a non-drinker, would you think I would respond to this film differently? Uh, do you need to have any kind of liking for alcohol to like the film, or is it beyond that? Mm. It's possible you'd have a slightly different experience of the film, but with the heart of it being uh, less about drinking and more about as cliche as it sounds, living for the moment. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's what I was trying to describe earlier yeah. when I said the film was more about life. The alcohol is, is more of a vehicle for the characters to, to get onto that journey. Uh, it's, it's the means rather than the end. It, it just it lays it all out there. Um, and um, even, even for non-drinkers such as yourself, Dan, we probably have seen everyone in various states of drunkenness. And you've seen the, uh, the, the joy and the laughter and the, uh, the pain and the sadness and the... Um, the, the humiliation, the tragedy. Andy, could you read out that list again? Yeah, um, it's uh, joy and laughter and camaraderie and silliness and rowdiness, embarrassment, humiliation and tragedy. Right, okay, now we need to put the time steps next to all of those for your wedding day. 12.35pm, <laughs> 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 
<laughs> it's set in Denmark, isn't it? So yeah. isn't that one of those countries that has kind of a weird relationship with alcohol? It's got probably the same relationship we do. Well, doesn't it price the alcohol really expensively? Mm-hmm. And isn't this because they, like Sweden, for instance, found that they have problems with people being very prone to alcoholism? Something to do with the late nights and the... Yeah, it's mentioned by one of the characters that Denmark mm. has a real problem with alcohol. Mm-hmm. The Danish title of the film is... Uh, Druk, which I'm mispronouncing because, as Norwegians have told me in the past, it's impossible to pronounce Danish properly unless you've got a mouthful of mashed potato. But <laughs> Druk, or however it's pronounced, um, just translates as binge drinking. So that's actually the proper title. Another round, as it's been called here, is, is a little bit more whimsical. Mm. I have a friend who saw it at a film festival last year, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's been going on about it ever since. She says it's like one of her favourite films that she's seen in many, many years. So. I've heard great things about it. I haven't got around to watching it yet. It sounds like I will really, really enjoy it. And I think you'd enjoy it, John. It yeah. sounds like it's less of a polemic than perhaps I was thinking it might be. Yeah, it's definitely not wagging a finger. Mm-hmm. It's not taking a moral stance. It's just, just showing it as it is. Yeah. Mm. So how many pints out of 10? <laughs> uh, I'd give it nine out of 10. Mm, cool. And then floor. <laughs> <laughs> Having been to a wedding in Sweden, I can confirm both that Swedish people can drink and that their alcohol is eye-wateringly expensive over there. Yeah. When you hear the phrase, another round in Sweden, all you want to do is cry because (laughs) (laughs) you realise quite how much that's going to cost you. So we're left with Hazel Mm. for our final recommendation. What could it be? What could it be? What could it be? Is that the Marvel fanfare I hear? I know. Just coming over out in the distance. Is it? Could it be? I went to the cinema to watch a Marvel movie which is something that we've not been able to do for over two years uh, since Spider-Man Far From Home. So <gasps> hearing the Marvel theme and watching those opening credits on the big screen really did bring out all of the feels. We were just like, oh my God. Um, so yes, this is Black Widow, the first solo outing for Scarlett Johansson's MCU character. Sadly, they waited until after she was dead to give her own film. End game spoilers there. Um, but that is probably the only negative thing I'm going to say about the film because this is a hell of a lot of fun. So the film opens with an incredible opening sequence. We see a young Natasha and her younger sister, Yelena, uh, living a seemingly idyllic life in suburban America with their parents, Alexei and Melina, played by David Harbour and Rachel Weisz. Something happens and they are forced to leave and they meet up with Alexei's boss, General Drakov, played by Ray Winston with a rather questionable Russian accent. Yeah. Hey, this is a franchise that has Mickey Rourke with a Russian accent. Yeah, it's I think, better than that. I think that. Ray Winston did pretty well. So Natasha and Yelena are separated from their air quote parents and sent to the red room for training which if you've seen avengers age of ultron you'll have an idea for what sort of training uh, is in store i will tell you it's rather different from the red room in 50 shades of gray it's all pain and no pleasure rather than a a mix of the two (laughs) (laughs) so after that opening sequence uh, it's mainly set just after civil war so she's on the run uh, because she helped out the fugitive Captain America. She broke the Sokovia Accords. So she's kind of running from safe house to safe house. Uh, She does end up meeting up with her sister, Yelena, played by Florence Pugh. And she is on her own mission to save as many Black Widows from the Red Room as possible. 
it's not the easiest of reunions, but the two actors do have a lot of fun with their sisterly energy. Um, and speaking of family dynamics, the parents do come back soon enough. Uh, and Alexei is <laughs> trying to get back into his Red Guardian uniform, which is hilarious. Um, <laughs> and his wife, Melina, is doing some interesting experiments with pigs. Um, so those family moments are absolutely delightful and my favourite parts of the film, uh, pig experimentation aside. It was a very good pig, though. <laughs> yes, yeah. There are some villains in the film. So we've got Ray, Ray Winston's general, uh, the other one being Taskmaster, not Greg Davies, but someone in a helmet who can seemingly look at someone and recreate their fighting style, which does make for some really great choreographed fights. I must admit, I kind of missed that when it was explained. So mm. there was one point when I was just, oh, how come he's throwing shields around like Captain America? Yeah. You know, have they not got any more ideas than that? Yeah. I didn't realise the thing about cloning the styles. Which is interesting. I thought the direction by Kate Shortland was brilliant. It's a very, very action film. It has some great stunt pieces that evoke quite a lot of those James Bond opening sequences. But everything was like believable and felt realistic. None of your Loki style green screen obviousness here. The actors are having a whale of a time. Uh, Scarlett Johansson has never been better as Black Widow. She's not always been best served, I think, by the Avengers movies, but she's come a long way since the introduction of her character in Iron Man 2, where she was mainly someone for Tony Stark to say sexist things to. And that is in large part to Johansson's portrayal and the scriptwriters wanting to explore different sides to her, not just her backside. Although, if you do like her backside, you won't be uh, disappointed in this film as well. No comment. <laughs> in a way, it served Florence Pugh's character better. Mm. A lot of it was more about her than yeah. about Natasha. Yeah. Natasha, for me, was, and perhaps intentionally, but she was quite sort of emotionally detached through this. And maybe that's because of what she went through in the Red Room. But she mm -hmm. did seem relatively out of it throughout the movie yeah. compared to Florence Pugh. A slightly different motivation, I think, because... Yeah. She was under the impression that she had ended the Red Room years beforehand and had kind of put it behind her. Yeah. Events mm. of this film reveal that she didn't quite get there. So she's got a different attitude to it than Yelena, maybe. My standout is definitely Florence Pugh as Yelena. And they are probably setting her up for her now to be a main character in the MCU mm -hmm. moving forward. Oh, without doubt. I also thought uh, Rachel Weisz as Melina was just brilliant. Both of those characters go through a range of emotions, but they're also very, very funny and extremely watchable as well. So those were my two stands out. I was surprised how funny it was, actually. It was mm. particularly sort of that David Harbour was hilarious in it. It yeah. was really yeah. good. Because I've seen him in other things, post-Stranger Things, where yeah. he's not come mm -hmm. across so well. And this, he was great and yeah. fantastic. I honestly don't have much bad to say about the film. Um, I think the story moved on at a real pace. It's not the shortest movie. I think it's about two and a quarter hours. But it, I didn't want to check my watch. I loved the script. I loved how they dealt with one particular sexist joke, which is about women being in bad moods when it's their time of the month. The response to that was just brilliant. Um, I love the actors. I love the action. It's a really, really good film. Um, and even though it's been released probably five years too late, mm -hmm. I'm still glad that they released it at all. So yeah. big, big thumbs up from me. And it's available in cinemas and also on Disney Plus with a fee on top of your subscription. Agreed on all counts. Uh, I really, really liked it as well. It's top 10 MCU for me. Loved the action. That opening set piece in particular was amazing. All the characters were great. And I liked that it was, for the most part, 
doing its own thing. It wasn't actively trying to set up four or five other things. Mm. I think the fact that it came along five years after Civil War probably helped it with that because lots of the things it might have set up have already happened. Mm-hmm. True. But I had a great time with it. Amy would want me to say that she absolutely loved it. It's top three for her. She's been wow. waiting for a Black Widow film for years and this did not disappoint. I feel a bit differently about the film. Of course you do. It's a Marvel thing, Andy. We're <laughs> destined to be opposites. Andy is the anti-derm. <laughs> I like the film. I was entertained throughout. I thought the four main actors were excellent. They had great chemistry. The family stuff was really, really good. But the story outside of the family stuff just just did nothing for me at all. It didn't get emotionally engaged. I felt like the majority of it was just exposition, people telling me about it. And uh, Taskmaster especially, I thought, had had great potential that didn't really get realised. The idea of mimicking other people's fighting styles didn't get used in a creative way other than a, oh, they're being Hawkeye now, they're being Captain America now, they're being Black Panther, and it just it didn't come to life. The other thing that really bothered me about the film was the action sequences. They were generally pretty well choreographed and really well executed, but I hated the way they were shot. There was a lot of shaky cam, wasn't there? They do that to try and get the lower certificate because if they were to zoom away from the shock of the hit or you know show the blood, it would automatically be given a higher certificate. Yeah, but it harms the film. There was one scene where there was the most bloodless stabbing I've ever seen in my entire <laughs> life. Saying that, there are a couple of really quite graphic moments as well. Like The Empire podcast was saying, I am surprised this is a 12. I was with it until the last third. There's a reveal about one of the characters that I wish they stopped doing that is very dated. Ray Winston's character was underused. And I thought some of the physics in the last third of the film, or the lack of physics, you know, obviously you want a big thrilling action yeah. sequence, but there were some points in that last third where I'm just going... This is just absolutely ludicrous. Yeah, for a non-superpowered person, mm-hmm. Natasha walked away from an awful lot of things <laughs> that she probably she shouldn't did. have yeah. survived. How comes it's still okay to pretend to be Russian and do a bad or comedy Russian accent? It's like the only country where we're still allowed to do that. Imagine if the villains were Chinese and everybody was doing a terrible Chinese mm. accent. Yeah. Everybody would be appalled. Well, after the couple of weeks that I've had, Russian criminals get <laughs> what's coming to them. <laughs> I sound like I'm shitting on it, but I'm not. I, I really enjoyed it, but with some reservations. So I'm probably more in the Andy camp than the Dan and Hazel camp. For me, it wasn't quite in my top 10 of Marvel. Mm-hmm. Uh, a little below that, but it's still enjoyable. But your message when you've been to see it was just like, I thought you might be bouncing off the walls. You were like, that was absolutely <laughs> amazing. Have you had time to reflect? Maybe I've calmed down since. <laughs> was it the first time you've been in the cinema, Peter, in two years? It is, yes. That could be it. Did you watch in a cinema, John, or were you at home? I was at home. (laughs) Can I have one more caveat with it? Sorry, that just reminded me. (laughs) Anything to pivot. Changing the subject, (laughs) quick as a widow. What they do to them in the bedrooms is horrible, and it was treated almost as a joke. I think it worked brilliantly, that, because that is such a sexist joke to say, um, you know, why, why are you so angry? Is it your time of the month? I thought the impact of that Mm. really landed well. And it's like, get back in your box and shut the fuck up because you have no idea what these women have been through. Mm. That's a David Harbour's character, not John. (laughs) (laughs) I've got a couple of questions for John. Okay. 
First one is, do you think you would have enjoyed it more or less or about the same if you'd been in the cinema to watch it? Because you're the only person I know, I think, who's watched it on the telly. Um, I would, in normal times, have enjoyed it more in the cinema. I think it deserves to be seen on a big screen. Mm. Personally, I wouldn't have enjoyed it two and a quarter hours plus trailers no. plus so wearing a mask is not a thing I can do. Yeah, but in normal, in normal times. times, I think I would have enjoyed it more in the cinema and maybe I would have enjoyed the action sequences that I had a problem with more if I saw them on a big screen. Mm. I didn't. Andy didn't. <laughs> um, my second question for John is, based on the post-credits scene, are you worried for the fate of your favourite Marvel character? I am more excited for a TV show that is coming <laughs> oh, than right. I was before. How many mellow covers of Smells Like Teen Spirit out of 10? Well, that was bad. <laughs> I didn't think you'd like that, John. <laughs> I'll go for nine mellow covers of Smells Like Teen Spirit out of 10. Very good. Hmm. Oh, Andy's holding up Andy's a six, six fingers. Seven? Was he thumb? Was your thumb included? Oh, six. Mm. Yeah, six <gasps> including the thumb. I was veering between a seven and an eight, but you just reminded me of that fucking awful song at the beginning, so it's a seven. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's right. an eight for me. It's an eight for me. On average, that's an eight. Better than Guardians Two. Oh, it's definitely better than Guardians Two. Andy and I agree on something Marvel related. Yay! Woo! <laughs> <laughs> and that is all for today's episode of Nerdfest. Thank you, as always, for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, you can check out our nerdy ramblings on social media at Nerdfest UK on Twitter and Facebook. And if you take the time between now and the next episode to leave us a positive review on iTunes, have we got a treat for you? Oh, yes. Well, this week's prize, I'm going to come around and I'm going to bring you a really good film to watch. But before I let you watch it, I'm going to give you a 10-minute, slightly dull, hopefully edited down by Peter, history of the uh, social and cultural (laughs) (laughs) aspects that I feel that you need to understand properly before you can enjoy the film. I found that really helpful. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't listen. Um, (laughs) Until next time, you've been listening to... A man who's going to go and listen to some more music from 50 years ago. In man de Ikatala Dansk. And a man who's secretly planning to murder the next person to speak. Oh Oh, no! (laughs) (laughs) Don't mention pandas. (laughs) A man who felt Peter was mansplaining why women kill. I would like to explain to women listening why that was so. (laughs) (laughs) And a woman who will now not go into any red room, no matter how nicely you ask. We'll see you next time. Bye. 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 Well, there was Throg, wasn't there? Yes, yeah, he did turn up briefly. They got Chris Hemsworth in, especially to record the frog noise. Oh, why would you just have Chris Hemsworth voice? Such a waste. <laughs> I didn't think it was his waste that you liked. No, but if I see that frog up a tree... Mm-hmm. No, wait, hang on. <laughs> <laughs> why is there a frog up a tree? How did it get there? <laughs> I started saying something and then I realised after the first syllable, stop what you're doing, Hazel. But I couldn't. <laughs> I wish I had that power. <laughs> 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 <laughs>